All right, so for this morning, um, we are in uh, lesson 10. Uh, this is part two of chapter five from Ferguson's book, uh, The Holy Spirit. This is the chapter on the spirit of order. So if you remember um, last week, we were going over what was called, you know, in, uh, in, in Latin, the ordo salutis, or in English, the order of salvation. And thinking about how do we think about salvation as it relates to the spirit, and then thinking through these logical categories, right? Like almost like, you know, log- logical um, uh, uh, um, uh, cause and effect. And one of the things that I wanted to do before we get into part two of this morning, where we really transition from looking at the Ordo Salutis to argue that, in fact, there's a better way for us to understand how the Spirit applies salvation. Instead of thinking of it um, primarily in terms of this, um, this logical order, it's better for us to think about it in regards to how the Spirit brings us into union with Christ. And so with that, uh, there were three... Uh, questions uh, from the Baptist Catechism that I wanted us to start with before we really kind of get into to our lesson. So I'll read the question, and then we'll do a response together with, with the answer for questions 32, 33, and 34. So let's do this together. Question 32. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Answer. We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. Question 33. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Answer. The Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. All right, and lastly, question 34. What is effectual calling? Answer, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. All right, excellent. So I just thought it was really helpful to kind of tie in some of the things that we're talking about and how it relates to some of our history, right, as what we've believed as particular Baptists. So, um, and as you see on your notes, I just thought, again, it was super helpful. You know, you started off with the Ferguson quote, to be in Christ means to share in all that Christ has accomplished. So this morning, as we are um, going to now focus more in-depthly as we think about our union with Christ, this lesson will seem that this is more of a lesson about Christ. And what I, what I want to remind us is, is that it is the Spirit that unites us to Christ. So as we explore and dive into union with Christ, we need to be reminded, right, as we, you know, really like deep diving, that it is the Spirit that's the one who's doing and making and affecting um, this, uh, this reality as we're united to Him. But now we're going to spend some time thinking about this in detail. So under your next heading, Christ as paradigm and source. 
And again, so a, a lot of what I'm going to say is really um, uh, uh, Ferguson quotes are really following closely to what Ferguson said. So um, to, to start, if you remember from last week, just a real quick recap. One of the things that we brought out was that there's an already and not yet aspect of salvation. So if you remember that from last week, there's this, there's this tension in the New Testament. And we saw it with, with a couple different facets. What I wanted to do was just real quick do like a high level and then, because uh, that's really going to help us as, as, as we go in. So you remember regeneration, right? Being given um, new life in the spirit. That's an aspect of new creation, right? So there's an already sense of new creation, but then there's also Revelation 21 and 22, which is new creation in its fullest, right? The new heavens and new earth in all of its glory, which is a future reality. In sanctification, we have died to sin in Christ, and it is definitive. It's done, right? Just like Christ died to sin, so we, in union to him, are also definitively broken from sin's power and dominion. And yet, in the same sense, we are not completely freed from sin, right? That won't be a future reality until we are blameless in the presence of Christ on that final day. Glorification. There is a sense in which we currently uh, experience an aspect of glory, right? If you remember in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul says, Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So there's a sense in which we are partakers even now of glory, but it's not in that final complete form. And now there's, there's, even, there's even this aspect with, legal, um, with, with legally in our justification and our adoption. And I'll just, Ferguson puts it really, really helpful here. And, he, and, he, and I think his, his little first sentence is helpful. And while, it, and while it requires carefully guarded statement, which I totally agree with, carefully guarded, it is also true that justification is an already accomplished and perfect reality, but awaits its consummation in the same way in which adoption, which like justification, it is a legal act in the New Testament, uh, in which, in the same way in adoption, we'll enter a new stage when we receive that for which we eagerly wait, yet patiently, and he quotes Romans 8.23, where it says, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there's a sense in which adoption finds its consummation in the new heavens and new earth, the redemption of our bodies, resurrection, right? Romans 8.23. But then he says, similarly... While believers have already been justified with irreversible finality, right? Just underline that. They will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is due to them. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Then in his capacity, Jesus, as the righteous judge, the Lord will give the crown of righteousness to all who have longed for his appearing. Right? In 2 Timothy 4.8, that idea of the crown of righteousness. Thus, and then he says, as impeccable a reformed document as the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, and then he quotes, at the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. So there's this, there's this future aspect, but again, um, it, it in no way changes 
a completed declaration that is irreversible and final of us being justified in Christ. And so we see with these aspects of salvation, this already, not yet, right? There's this this past tense and this future tense aspects. And so, so that helps us to really dive in when we talk about union with Christ. And, and Richard Gaffin has also written on the subject. In fact, uh, Ferguson uh, references him quite a bit in the book. And he sa- he, so he helpfully characterizes a couple of aspects. He says, when we think about union with Christ, we should think about a representative aspect. And again, we're going to go into this in the second section. So you have representation is one. Then you also have a renovative aspect. Right, and, think, and that's when we think of like sanctification, this work that the Spirit is doing in changing us, right, as it relates to our union with Christ. And then there's also, lastly, uh, what he calls a vital or spiritual aspect, um, uh, thinking vitality or life-giving. Um, uh, and so like we, uh, um, yeah, in fact, he even says what, in regards to um, uh, vital, and, and, and it's interesting so when he uses this term, our vital union with Christ, he's actually referencing back to something that was very common in uh, the 16th and 1700s when they talked about union with Christ. So he goes on to describe it as, it is nothing less than a life union, a union in life shared with Christ. In that sense, it is an aspect of what is characteristically called mystical union and is affected by the enlivening work of the Holy Spirit and the believer. In that sense, vital union, union in life with Christ, is also spiritual. So again, I, I, think, I think those are helpful. So now we're going to really dig into, and I didn't put it on your, on your notes, so I apologize. You, there's a lot of space under implication, so if you want to move that down, you're more than welcome to. So... There are three subheadings that I want us to work through as we think about union with Christ. And the first of those is union with Christ and Jesus' resurrection as his redemption or deliverance. Jesus' resurrection as his deliverance or redemption. Now, I will say that this was um, a more challenging part to what Ferguson wrote, but just because it is challenging in no means uh, does not make it biblical. So I just invite you at this time to really engage and think with me on this important aspect. So with our union to Christ through the Spirit, all the blessings that Christ has earned for us in salvation become ours instantaneously and completely. There is nothing missing when we, uh, by the Spirit, are united to Christ. Right? It's not like, well, you wait a couple years and then there's other aspects right, that become yours in Christ. Everything is instantaneous and complete. And again, I say complete in that already not yet aspect. Right? Um, so with this understanding, we're going to explore three stages of how our union with Christ relates to Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension or exaltation. So firstly, uh, and this is to quote Ferguson. Actually, several of these are just going to be a little bit longer quotes. So firstly, to quote Ferguson, central to the apostles' thinking in this connection is the fact that for Paul, 
the foundation of our redemption lies in participation, not only in the death, but also in the resurrection of Christ. And he quotes uh, Romans 6, Ephesians 2, and Colossians, uh, Colossians 2, 12 through 13, and Colossians 3, 1. This being raised with Christ took place in representative fashion in Christ's historical resurrection. Just as in the same sense, when Christ died, we died, right? That's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. One has died for all, therefore all have died. But um, it is realized, or he's, I don't even know if this is a real word, existentialized in the believer at regeneration or conversion when we uh, turn to the Lord. Um, and he says, these two quote-unquote moments, Christ's resurrection and ours, belong together logically, although separated by time. Common to both is the ministry of the Spirit. And why is that? Because the Spirit unites us to Christ. Now, let me show you an example of this. Right? Go to, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. And whoever gets there, if you would please read verses 12 and 13. Perfect. So notice that, right, where he says, um, so we were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him, right? So that's talking about union with Christ and then um, uh, uh, who, who raised him from the dead. And then, you know, we were dead in our sin. And then again, verse 13, God made alive together with him. So to Ferguson's point, Christ's death, and resurrection and our death and resurrection in him are related together though separated by time and there's an aspect in which we are with Christ uh, even when he is crucified buried and raised so secondly Paul views the resurrection of Christ from the dead as his redemption and and the and the word redemption here is really being used in this broader sense, right? Um, uh, referring to uh, deliverance. His death, and this is to quote Ferguson, his death is everything that death truly is. In his capacity, and this is very important, in his capacity as the second man, as the last Adam, right? His role as redeemer and mediator, he experienced death as the wages of sin, separation from life, judgment under the wrath of God and alienation from the face of the Father. Right? So Christ experienced this when he as the, as the, as the last Adam underwent judgment for us. To, to quote Ferguson, he says, he died to the sin under whose power he came. Right? Like, and, and he quotes Romans 6.10 where it says, the death he died, he died to sin. 
but from, and to quote Ferguson, but from death thus conceived, Christ was raised, delivered, vindicated, or quote-unquote saved through the resurrection, 1 Timothy 3.16. In his resurrection, he was quote-unquote redeemed and delivered from death by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do is look at a couple of these texts that Ferguson brings up to help us think about this. So if I can have someone take Romans 6.10, all right, and then someone else can, can someone else get Galatians 3.13. All right, you got it? And then, Matt, do you mind getting 1 Timothy 3.16? All right. Yep, go ahead. Uh, Romans 6.10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Okay, excellent. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Excellent. And it's interesting, even in 1 Timothy 3.16, when it says vindicated by the Spirit, uh, you'll, you'll see a footnote like in the ESV where it says justified. Right? It says another rendering of the same word. And we're going to get into that in our, next, in our next little point here. So we need to remember that the disciples were down and depressed after Christ's death and burial. Their Messiah was accursed of God. Doubt was cast on the Redeemer. Could he really be the Messiah if he died under God's wrath by hanging on a tree. The resurrection vindicates and declares that Jesus is who he said he is and accomplished all that he said he would accomplish. And so third, as, as we're working through these, these, these three moments, if you will, three ideas, to quote Ferguson, he says, in Paul's exposition of the gospel, the categories used to describe the application of redemption to the believer are the categories which explain the meaning of Christ's resurrection. In other words, the application of redemption to us is rooted in the application of redemption to Christ. It, yes. In other words, the application of redemption to us is rooted in the application of redemption to Christ. So, and remember, the important thing to nuance here is this is Christ as representative, right? Christ who took sin upon himself and suffered in our place, in our stead. So, and it's helpful to, you know, as, as Ferguson was bringing out, to bring out that nuance so when he says, Jesus' resurrection is viewed as his justification, right? Like we read in 1 Timothy 3.16. In it, he was vindicated or justified by the Spirit. And that Greek word there, dikaio, is the same Greek verb used when it talks about the believer being justified in Christ. 
And he goes on, having been made sin in his death, in his resurrection, he was declared as our representative to be what he was in fact already and always personally, and that was righteous, right? So it, as representative, that's what the resurrection is vindicating or declaring, right? No, truly, he was righteous and the sin curse that he bore, right, he did in the stead of sinners and has been raised and accepted uh, by the Father in that sense. <clears throat> Dying in our place as the condemned one, right, a legal declaration, right, condemnation is a legal declaration, he was raised as the justified one, right, also a legal declaration, um, uh, to, to quote the uh, uh, Ferguson quote. Notice the legal words, right? Condemn and justify. Both are legal declarations in his role as redeemer and representative of his people. But not only this, when we see the sense of justification, we also see it with adoption. Uh, he says, uh, Ferguson says, Paul also implies that the resurrection can be seen as Jesus's adoption. Um, and, he, and he goes on, so turn with me real quick to, to Romans chapter 1. And I want to make an important qualification here. Because um, uh, as, as Ferguson had said earlier in one of his quotes, a lot of this stuff is to be carefully guarded. Because some of this could be misunderstood where all of a sudden we're going back to the first couple hundred years of church history and we're back into heresies related to Christ, Right? So we want to make sure that we're, we're correctly nuancing these things. So look with me in Romans chapter 1. And uh, can I have a volunteer read verses 3 and 4? Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. All right, fantastic. And uh, so I'm going to read here from, um, from Ferguson, where he says, within the matrix of classical patristic Christology, what does that mean? That means first couple hundred years of church history, the church fathers writing and thinking about the doctrine of Christ, right? And they read this. So how did the church fathers originally read this? They read this as it relates to the two natures of Christ, right? So verse three, uh, descended according to the flesh, that's the human nature, and then in verse 4, Son of God, divine nature, right? And they would really look at that text this way. But he goes on to say, uh, Ferguson says, But the contrast in view is not between the two natures, but the two states of Christ. And more precisely, between the two ages or aeons of his existence. You know how we talked about that word, this age and the age to come? That's what he's referring to when he says, when he says ages. According to the flesh and according to the spirit refer to his humiliation and his exaltation. His resurrection thus constitute him messianic son of God with power. In it, he is adopted as the man of the new age. And I just want to make a clarification here like I did before reading that. Your spiritual antennas may be raised when we read this, right? You might think there was a heresy in the history of the church called adoptionism, right? Where Christ becomes son, where he was not always the eternal son. And again, just to clarify, Ferguson 
and others who have, who have written on this are not referring to Jesus becoming Son and was not always the eternal pre-existent Son. What it's bringing out is an aspect that Jesus, uh, or that the Son is the eternally begotten Son, always and forever. But yet, there is a sense in which, in His humiliation, He is, he is the Son of God in weakness and does not become the Son of God in power until the resurrection. And that's the, that's the emphasis that Ferguson is bringing out. The difference between weakness and power, right? Um, humiliation versus exaltation or bringing in that new age, that age of resurrection. Resurrection power. And then lastly, he brings up... <clears throat> The sanctification. So he says the resurrection may also be viewed as the sanctification of Christ. That which is fundamental to our sanctification is found first in Christ himself. Uh, and again, he, 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 um, he quotes uh, Romans 6, 9 through 10, where he says, He died to sin once for all and was raised to newness of life in which he lives forever to God. Now again, that is not to say that somehow... Christ was becoming a sinner, right, in the sense that he was personally sinful. But what it is saying as representative, he died once for all to sin and in resurrection was raised, vindicated. And, and that shows that definitive break with sin, that sin's power has been defeated in Christ's death and resurrection. And again, where am I going with this, right? Bear with me, because the point of all this is to tie in what Christ accomplishes. We are in union to him. And so when we think about these categories or aspects of salvation, they are first found with Christ in his representative role and we as benefactors to that. So it's the similar, um, similar descriptions that are found with Christ. And again, when we talk about the sanctification, it is not where we normally think about it, right? How do we normally think about sanctification, right? The day in, day out, right? Just like sometimes it feels like you're just grudging through, right? You're like, I'm just going to keep persevering, right? It's, it's that, you know, that progressive sense. And that's not as much the sense that we're intending to bring out here, even though um, that would be secondary. It is that definitive break with sin. Sin's power is gone. It is completely defeated. Right. Um, and then the implications are and yet there's still remnants of the flesh. And that's a part of that already not yet. Right. Where we are sanctified in Christ and yet not completely sanctified in that full or final sense. So let me let me just go ahead and pause there. Do we have any questions or comments so far? Because, again, like I said, that was that was pretty, um, pretty thick stuff. Right? Important, but, but thick stuff. So any questions or comments? All right. All right. Well, let's keep going. <clears throat> so. Can I ask a question? Or go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I just want to clarify. Yes. <clears throat> so it's basically like, if I'm following, yes. is that every aspect of Christ's life from his humiliation, his humiliation, um, 
his exaltation, all of that, the resurrection, mm -hmm. his death, all of those things for us as believers, with him as our federal head, those same things were applied to us. Yes. So he was he was crucified, and yet Paul says we have been crucified with, with him. Christ. Correct. Right? And we have been raised yes. with Christ. Yes. Yeah. Colossians two. Colossians yes. two. Right. So yeah. So. I don't really have a question. I was, I guess yeah, yeah, just, just like, sure yeah, like, is, is this what you said? And the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah. everything that, that applied to Christ in his humiliation, we as Christians are now going through that. We are now raised to newness of life, yet it is that already and not yet because we still have sin within us. We're yes. still being sanctified. Yes. Correct. But yet we are raised with Christ now. We have all exactly. the yep. in Christ now. Like Ephesians 2, right? It says that we've been raised with Christ and, as, uh, and, and we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Right. There's a sense in which we have been exalted with Christ in his ascension, right? Because we are with him in the heavenly places, right? And yet it's still that already not yet aspect. Okay. Yeah. Right. And then so, and so, sorry. Just no, no, you're good. First, first Timothy 3, of what you're saying there is that vindication. So it's almost like he, he died in that humiliation, but yet because he had no he had no sin. It was impossible, as Paul says, for death to hold him. Yes. So he was vindicated, justified yes. in the spirit. And for us who are in Christ, we can't have our trespasses counted against us because we have been vindicated right. by, by faith in Christ as well. Right, right, because we, we have been justified in him. Right. Correct, correct. Just as, just as he as our representative was justified or vindicated uh, to, um, in, in his resurrection. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Rusty. Uh, was there ever any debate on this? Is this contentious uh, in any way? Or is everybody on board with this? Um, so I think with any part of theology, there's always going to be some form of, of, of debate. Now, whether it becomes really large, you know, or is it like, you know, like wild hair? Um, yeah, I, I think there there are debates with all the different aspects of salvation, um, with with it within different circles. Um, now, to be honest with you, in regards to our union with Christ, I've not read enough of people that don't agree with me, right? Like like I so a lot of the people that I read were in the Reformed camp, so I'm not sure. I didn't read like others to say like, okay, well, how do they think about it? So. I, my, my 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 suspicion is there probably are right, but I'm I'm just not I'm not I'm not as really aware. Okay. When you had said the adoptionism though, kind of heresy. Yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, so that was with um, the Nestorians in the I think fourth century or fifth century, okay. and that, and again it, it's the idea where Jesus becomes divine at some point, so he's not pre-existent. Son, always Son, eternally begotten Son, but at some point uh, be becomes that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, and it's almost like just trying to make like some of these nuances how we're characterizing this. Yeah. But you don't know if the the patristics like for those first couple hundred years were they kind of opposite, or you haven't enough reading to know if. Uh, no, no. Well, the, as far as yeah, I mean that, that 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 was a part of what required some of what they would do, like with the different councils, where they would get together and really think it through, and then they condemned those positions, like, "Hey, no, this is the eternally begotten Son. He was always Son, always God, and this position is not affirming those things." Yeah. Yeah. No good questions.
And I'll be, I'll be honest with you, this chapter, just ask my wife. I was like, I was just like struggling. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be ready. This is like, this, yeah, just like thinking through some of this stuff. Because this is, a, um, uh, it's definitely got a depth to it um, that I've, I'm, I was, was less familiar with. But really, really, I think very helpful, though, with the way that it, um, thinking in some of these categories. So, all right. so secondly, um, union with Christ being legal, covenantal, and representative, right? So legal, covenantal, and representative. So this is to bring out, right? So we, we kind of talked about those, those aspects related to our union with Christ and the aspects of salvation, how it relates to Christ as the one whose paradigm and source. He's the one who, um, uh, 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 and with our union to him and his death and resurrection. So now we're going to go on and think about some other aspects of union with Christ, some of the pictures used. So there's several concepts and pictures that help us understand union with Christ. Uh, there is marriage, right, whereby Christ becomes our covenant partner as the Spirit unites us to him. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5, verses 30 to 32, where he says that the marriage union with a husband and wife is a great or profound mystery. But then he says, this refers to Christ and the church. So there's an aspect in which union with Christ and a husband and wife, there, is, there, 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 there are um, degre- degrees of similarity, right? There's this, this is mystery that Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul calls believers members of Christ and temples of the Holy Spirit, right? Remember where he says, uh, do you not know, right, that you are uh, a temple of the Holy Spirit? Uh, but then in verses, uh, we're, and we're going to tur- turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16, or 1 Corinthians 6 with me. Um, verses 15 and through 17, because he contrasts two unions between sexual immorality with a prostitute and union with Christ. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 6, and let's read uh, verses 15 through 17. Whoever gets there, just go ahead and read. So notice that in verse 17. So there's this contrast, right? This prohibition against sexual morality. But then what is it contrasted with? It's contrasted with our union with Christ in the spirit. And there's also representative aspects. And we even find this in the Old Testament, right? Like the promises of a seed in Genesis, right? We think of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, right? In Genesis 3.15, or the seed of Abraham, that in, in him, or in his seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. There's this representative, or representation, what this one does will affect the many in him. Right? We even find traces of this in the Old Testament, or the servant songs of Isaiah. Right? One of those that we're very familiar with is Isaiah 53. Right? The ser- he's the servant who bears the sin of his people. And so Ferguson says, building on this, he says, the strongest clue to appreciating the theological significance of this idea 
lies in Paul's parallel phrase, in Adam. And we're going to go into some of these texts that he, that he cites here. To be, quote-unquote, in Adam is to be united to him in such a way that all that Adam did in his representative capacity becomes mine and determines my existence. Whether through sin leading to death or righteousness leading to life. In an analogous way, to be in Christ means that all he has done for me representatively becomes mine actually. Right? So what Christ accomplishes as representative with our union to him, all that he's accomplished becomes ours is as an actual possession. Right? Now, now okay, like what, what does that mean with justification? What that means is we possess the righteousness of Christ in him and God declares us to be righteous. Does that mean that we are perfect in that, in that um, uh, uh, aspect of our walk with him? No, right? It, it is not something intrinsic to us. So it's something we actually possess. And yet it is what, what Luther said was still alien to us. It's something outside of us. It is the righteousness of Christ that it is credited to us. So, but, that, but I think that's really important, this idea of representation. So um, I, want, I want to hit on these texts, really important. So turn with me back to Romans and keep a finger in 1 Corinthians. Um, uh, Romans 5, this is like, this is one of those just like key texts, right? Especially as um, uh, Reformed Baptists, particular Baptists, I think this is just really, really, really important. So, and I'll just go ahead and read Romans 5, verses 15 through 19. Romans 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, right? Legal, right? Legal declaration of condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is really critical, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, right? Adam's sin and what he did as representative now becomes all those in him. But then look at what it says next. So one act of righteousness, right? Of, and, and that of Christ leads to justification and life for all Men, And that's in particular all men in Christ. In verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Right? And that's in regards to status. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you see, I mean, this is like one of those like really critical texts, right? Romans 5, this idea of representation, super, super important. Because our union, right? We think about in Adam and in Christ. So turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians 15. 
And while you're turning to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll look at verses 45 to 47. I just want to read while you're turning there, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 to 22, where he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So now in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll just read verses 45 to 47. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from earth a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And I really appreciate Gaffin, um, what he says here, Richard Gaffin. He says, this contrast but, um, where we look at Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, or I'm sorry, yeah, um, Roman, in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, the contrast is between the Adam of Genesis 3, the fallen sinner, and Christ as righteous. You know, in other words, Adam's death-dealing transgression stands in opposition to Christ's obedience and his reconciling death. But it's a little bit different when we look at 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 45 and 46 and 47. This contrast, already, you know, already sweeping enough in Romans 5, is even broader because its contrast is not Genesis 3, right, Adam, who's a fallen sinner, but it's Genesis 1 and 2 with Adam as a created being and Christ who is resurrected, the bearer of resurrection or eschatological life or eternal life. So it's something that's even more broadly when we think about this idea of representation. If you want to think of it this way, right, because representation um, ties in with this idea of covenant, right? The, the ideas are very similar, or federal, right? Federal head. The idea of federal headship doesn't start when sin enters the world. Federal headship started before Genesis 3, right? It started before that idea of sin coming into the world, and we see that with this Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 contrast between these two atoms. All right. Any questions or any, or any comments? All right. All right. So, and so for, um, so our third point, I want us to look quickly at three different but complementary perspectives. Ferguson calls this the three moments regarding our union. And I thought this was really interesting uh, when, we start to, when we start to think about these. And the three are this. The eternal the incarnational, and the existential. Why he has to use vocabulary that's intended for, you know, the Oxford Dictionary, you know. So, 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 so what does that mean? So the eternal refers back to God's decree in eternity past with election. We were not elected um, um, and, then, and then thought of, you know, Christ, if you, if you, uh, let me just read Ephesians 1 in verse 3 where he says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then this is key in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him. So there's this sense in which union with Christ is in the foundation of the thought of God in election. Now, that might generate a whole bunch of questions like, what does that mean and what does that look like? And to be honest with you, like Ferguson and other guys I read, they were like, look, this is a mystery, right? But, but we do know what has been revealed. So that's this eternal aspect, right? That our union with Christ is rooted in something so foundational as election in Christ. But then there's the incarnational, and that's what we just spent a whole bunch of time dealing with. We are united with Christ as in his dying, in his rising, and in his exaltation, right? Like um, we, we think about, you know, we've read a lot of these texts already. Um, and when we think about this, our lives are no longer determined, uh, this is to quote Ferguson, they're no longer determined by what Adam has done, but by what Jesus Christ has done. And then lastly, there's the existential. So what is, and remember, we're talking about three moments, right? So you have the time of Christ in his coming, right? Incarnation means when he took on flesh, when he was born of a woman, took on a human nature. And now, so this third one is the existential. This is at conversion, right? When we become united to Christ by the Spirit and faith in Christ. Um, so uh, it, it, think of it this way. Um, Turn one book over real quick, or not one book, a couple books over, uh, right after Galatians, in Ephesians, right? And Paul says in Ephesians um, 2 in verse 3 that, uh, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Or notice in, um, in verse 12, remember that you were at, the to- at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the uh, covenants of promise. So there's a sense in which we are not united to Christ or it's not actualized, right, in that sense until we become united to him by faith and that is through the working of the Holy Spirit. Now again, these aspects, you're like, how does that work? And it's one of those things where I trust what I read, right? And that's what, that's what the scripture reveals, right? That, and um, and I, I think, you know, it could be a good reminder, like in, uh, what is it, Isaiah? Is it 55 or 56? Our thoughts are not his thoughts and our ways are not his ways. There is a sense in which the things of God uh, supersede um, our thoughts. So then lastly, implications. And, and we really, you know, there's, um, I, like, I like what Ferguson said here, where he said, our past is a past in Adam. It's done away. And our present existence is in Christ, in the Spirit. And you'll see all over the New Testament, when we look at union with Christ, it uses that reality, or, what we'll, or what, what's said as an indicative, right? It's a proposition. It's a statement. There's nothing that you do when, when, we, when we think about these texts as it relates to union, right? Where it's just describing who you are in Christ. But then, 
Paul and others will then use union with Christ as our basis to live out that reality where he'll give commands. Walk in newness of life. Why? Because you have been raised with him. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you through the Holy Spirit. Right? So that, to me, that has these like massive implications. Right? And sometimes sanctification can be, um, uh, at, at its core, such a renewal of mind of reminding us who we are in Christ. We are no longer under dominion of sin. Why does sin's power no longer reign over us? Because we died to sin with Christ in His death to sin. Amazing, amazing realities. All right, well, with that, um, let us go ahead and close and we'll, and we'll be dismissed. Lord God, we worship you. Thank you that we can think about our union with Christ and salvation and that as it is affected by the Holy Spirit. It becomes, uh, we become in Christ through the Holy Spirit, the work, His working. So we thank you for these glorious realities. Help us to continue to mature and progress even in these glorious and weighty and heavy truths. And we ask this for your namesake. Amen.